Okay, so um, I will at some point stop showing these introductory slides, but I always feel like I need to um, orient a little bit where we are. So we've spent some time going through some, some guidelines for reading the Old Testament. And last time we talked about the importance of reading the Bible, not to confirm what we already think is true, not to confirm our preconceived list of doctrines, and not to primarily to construct that list, um, but to read the, the story, to read the Bible as a story, and to allow this story to speak for itself. And last time we discussed, if we just understand the story of Jeremiah and what actually happened, um, how helpful that is in building our picture of who God is. And I'm going to add another little subtitle here that uh, a major point will try to come out of um, this lesson is that the Bible, the story, um, should be read as a whole. Okay, now uh, we could take the position that uh, the Bible just happened to come together, a bunch of books here and there, that uh, randomly some made it in, some didn't. But if we believe that um, God had a hand in the selection of the books that eventually made it into um, our canon, then I, I think we really want to take every bit of evidence in the Bible and try to put it together. So if we're building a whole theology <clears throat> around one verse or one story, um, we could you know, end up going in a false direction. We want to find out what the entire Bible has to say about a certain topic. And always, uh, we, we allow Jesus to be the, the final and ultimate authority. <clears throat> okay, so once again, after Saul, David, Solomon, we have the splitting of the kingdoms, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and we talked about this 200-year uh, period of time leading up to the um, Assyrian captivity. And so remember, we have these tribes lost into Assyrian captivity, and we're left with Judah and Benjamin. Okay, and so uh, this period of time from around 650 Manasseh down to 586, this is where we are right now. Okay, and so we're discussing the things that led up to the Babylonian captivity. So it's just kind of a, a cascade down of things getting worse and worse. And so we're focusing in on these three prophets. Jeremiah right now, who lived throughout the entire period of time. And uh, then we'll talk about Daniel, taken out in the first invasion, and then Ezekiel, taken out in the second invasion. <clears throat> okay, and so our subject, I, I wanted to talk about God's wrath and hell uh, this time, but God's wrath became such a big subject, we're just going to tackle that one, and then I think we'll talk about um, hell in the Old Testament next time. And if you just do a search on God's wrath or anger in the book of Jeremiah, uh, you will have a very long verse. I didn't count exactly, but well over 30, 35 verses that have to do with God's anger. I think it's probably the best um, book in the Old Testament um, for focusing in on this subject and trying to understand what exactly is it. So I'll just read a few sample verses, and then, then we'll try to get a better grasp of what's being described. Okay, so three from chapter four. Keep your covenant with me. If you don't, my anger will burn like fire because of the evil things you have done. It will burn and there will be no one to put it out. So put on sackcloth and weep and wail because the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from Judah. And then later on, the fertile land has become a desert. Its cities were in ruins because of the Lord's fierce anger. So our question is, what's, what's the reality of these verses? What is actually happening? Uh, how do we interpret this? The land used to be fertile, now it's a desert. Okay, do we understand God's wrath as him specifically reaching out and imposing something so that the land became a desert? 
Um, what's involved here? In chapter 7, So I, the sovereign Lord, will pour out my fierce anger on this temple. I will pour it out on people and animals alike, and even on the trees and the crops. My anger will be like a fire that no one can put out. And then in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, I will make them serve their enemies in a land they know nothing about, because my anger is like fire, and it will burn forever. Okay, now one question is, what's our approach to this? Uh, one approach would be, well, uh, let's look up wrath in the dictionary. Okay, and uh, that, uh, that will help us to, to round out uh, what is being described here. So we look up the word wrath in dictionary, and here's the definition. Strong, stern, or fierce anger, deeply resentful indignation, ire, vengeance, or punishment as the consequence of anger. Okay, uh, is this the right approach to, to defining a subject like this? Now, remember this Bible study, you know, our, our intention focus is to get a better grasp on God's character. Remember, we're invited to do that. Eternal life is to know God. And Jesus came to reveal who God is. And so, uh, do we readily want to uh, incorporate into God's character vengeance or punishments as, as a consequence of anger? Um, how do we see that in the life of Jesus? Well, let's just read on, and let's see if, if some verses here will clarify. It may get worse as we read on, but let's read on anyway. Uh, I will fight against you with all my might, my anger, my wrath, and my fury. I will kill everyone living in this city. People and animals alike will die of a terrible disease. Anyone who stays in the city will be killed in war or by starvation or disease. And what we'll notice in all of these texts is... Um, we have a description of God acti actively doing it. I will kill. I will make the fertile land a desert. And then kind of mixed in with it, we have, okay, well, they're dying of disease. Uh, they're killed by war or starvation. And again, our question is, how is God involved um, in the process? Okay, and here's the first of um, a relationship that is not just based on a verse or two in the Bible. It's a, it's a completely redundant, again and again and again, relationship. In fact, uh, next time you read through the Bible, uh, just, just keep it in mind. When you see God's anger, God's wrath, uh, look for this association. So if we just read on in this passage about God's anger, it will be given over to the king of Babylonia, and he will burn it to the ground. I, the Lord, have spoken. So we have a description here of God actively doing it. And then as we read on, it will be given over. And the phrase here that's used is given over, given over, handed over, abandoned, forsaken, uh, some, some variation on that theme. And then we notice who actually was the one who burned it to the ground. And we have a description here of God's anger. It's like a fire. Okay, but it was the king of Babylon. He will burn it to the ground. Okay, so let's look for a little more evidence of that. The Lord has abandoned his people like a lion that leaves its cave. The horrors of war and the Lord's fierce anger have turned the country into a desert. Again, we have the description here of God abandoning his people uh, in a relationship to his anger. Okay, we'll eventually go through quickly um, a survey of, of the Old Testament, what we've done so far, to try to establish that relationship. In Jeremiah 34, the Lord, the God of Israel, told me to go and say to King Zedekiah of Judah, I, the Lord, will hand this city over. Again, abandon, forsake to the king of Babylonia, and he will burn it to the ground. Okay, so we have a description that's, that's both ways, and we're, we're trying to, to try to synthesize the two. 
Now, Ezekiel, remember, writing at the same time. Okay, he's writing from Babylon. Jeremiah is writing from Jerusalem. And uh, his description is, is just very similar. Hey, you will feel my anger when, it, when I turn it loose on you like a blazing fire. Okay, what does that look like? And I will hand you over to brutal men, experts at destruction. Again, this, this redundant relationship, God's anger, handing over, giving up, forsaking. And then just reading on, I will hand you over to other nations who will rob you and plunder you. And if we read the historical account, if we want to just get the history of this, we read Second Chronicles. And Second Chronicles ends with this description of the Babylonians taking over Jerusalem. And we read that the king killed the young men of Judah, even in the temple. He had no mercy on anyone, young or old, man or woman, sick or healthy. God handed them all over to him. Okay, so again, God in his anger, what did he do? The, the description here is uh, God handing over. Okay, but, but this might not necessarily paint a good picture of God. Okay, just easily handing over, giving up, forsaking people, and then letting other people uh, destroy. So we, we still we need to try to come to a, a better description of this. Lamentations, also written by Jeremiah, um, has this uh, concise verse. The Lord in his anger has covered Zion with darkness. It's heavenly splendor. He has turned into ruins. And on the day of his anger, on the day of his anger, he abandoned even his temple. So even within this period of time, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we see this uh, relationship again between God's anger and abandoning. Okay, now, um, we have a description in the Bible that, uh, that seems to really um, clarify things, I think, as we read on. Um, even in the Ten Commandments and in the books of Moses, uh, God pretty much does everything. Okay, in the Ten Commandments, God punishes to the third and fourth generation for the sins of the parents. God does everything. Now, as we read on, in Ezekiel, we're told uh, very clearly that God does not punish the children for the sins of the parents. Okay, remember the disciples, when they saw the man that was born blind, in their mind, there was only one of two options. Who sinned, this man or his parents? And, and Jesus said it has nothing to do with his sin. Okay, and so uh, we, we move kind of from a picture where God, God's responsible for everything that happens uh, to something that's, that's you know, more uh, nuanced. And I think Jeremiah is, is really where we begin to, to clearly see that, that sin has a consequence, okay, that does not require God to step in and actually do something. I'll just read a few verses on that. In Jeremiah 2, you have brought this on yourself, by abandoning the Lord your God when he led you on his way. Notice, your own wickedness will correct you, and your unfaithful ways will punish you. Hey, who does the punishing here? Your unfaithful ways will punish you. You should know and see how evil and bitter it is for you if you abandon the Lord your God. Okay, and one more in chapter 4. Judah, you have brought this on yourself by the way you have lived, by the things you have done. Your sin has caused this suffering. It has stabbed you through the heart. Okay, notice the, the focused you know, intention of these verses as um, it is your rebellion, it is your separation from me that is leading um, to the punishing. Okay, so uh, I think um, we could, uh, I did a Google on this. I went through five Google pages last night just to see. This is not a good way to do theology, but I just kind of wanted to get some, some ideas here. And then you just type in, Quotes, what is God's wrath? And they were all pretty much um, in agreement. And I, I won't quote the people 
who said this, but at least one of them is well known. And so here, God's wrath represents his righteous indignation and imposed punishment for sin. And God actively doing it for sin. Our divine wrath is God's righteous anger and punishment provoked by sin. Okay, so th this seems to be the, the generally accepted uh, way that, uh, that we look at the subject of God's wrath. So I think the central question in this is, again, is God's wrath uh, externally imposed? Okay, let's make a, uh, an illustration here. Let's consider doctors. Okay, we're talking about rebellious people. Okay, this is God's wrath. It's in the context of rebellious people. And remember the story of Jeremiah. They just wouldn't listen. They're just, they could care less about God. And so let's consider here physicians. How do physicians deal with rebellious patients? This is not a rebellious patient here, but uh, let's consider a rebellious patient, a smoker, okay, that you've seen for 10 years as your patient, and you tell the patient every time, uh, you know what, there's uh, two or three packs a day of cigarettes, it's eating up your lungs. Um, and I have you on three inhalers and medications because of the effects of smoking. And you know your risk of lung cancer is extremely high because of your smoking. Okay, and you, you do everything you can. You, nicotine patches, you refer them to different places. Um, we, we see why this is important as it relates to the subject of God's character. Because imagine if the reputation of doctors is, well, you know the thing about doctors, if you smoke... Um, that really upsets doctors. And uh, they, will, uh, they will sneak into your bedroom at nighttime and do things to cause lung cancer. They will actively cause lung disease. Okay, now what would be the reputation of doctors? If you're a smoker, would you want to go see a doctor? If, um, if that's what doctors did to smokers. Okay, that, way that would substantially view, change our image of who doctors are. Okay, but obviously in this case, smoking... It's, it's a self-imposed penalty. We can give lots of examples. Let's just say you decide, you know what, I'm going to go three or four months and not brush my teeth. I'm just, just not going to do it. And, um, you know, again, do dentists. It really upsets them. There's nothing wrong with not brushing your teeth. That's not harmful at all. The problem with not brushing your teeth is that dentists will get you for not brushing your teeth. Okay? Um, again, other relationship. Let's say in medical school, you just... I, going to take a week or two off. You're not going to study. I like to do that, huh? Okay? But, um, let's just say that, uh, that I am omniscient. Dr. Warner is omniscient. And we're aware how much study time each one of you does. And so when you come in and sit for your test, having taken a couple weeks off during that uh, block, okay, that your performance, uh, well, yeah, you probably would, would do poor on the test, but there's also an externally imposed because of your lack of study time, we'll make sure you do really poorly on that test. Okay, uh, again, um, externally imposed or a natural consequence. Okay, there's a law of gravity. Okay, if you just decide uh, you're going to step off a cliff, does God need to set the wheels in motion to make sure that gravity works and that you fall? Or is this uh, just a consequence of... Um, of that whole process. So again, we could, we could see things here in a couple different ways. And um, again, helpful, uh, I think I will quote this verse many times as we go through the Old Testament. Stubborn mules. God is talking to stubborn mules. Okay, He's trying to speak loudly to stubborn mules. We've even got a verse for this. The people of Israel are as stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? And so the, the harsh words that we have so often in the Bible, I will punish to the third and fourth generation. Well, that's actually true, isn't it? 
I mean, if you have a, an alcoholic parent who beats his kids every night, is there an effect to the third and fourth generation? Uh, absolutely. But the question is, is God micromanaging to make sure that punishment comes to fruition? Something bad happened to you this week, and it was God punishing you for something your great-grandfather did. Um, again, we can see that God is speaking loudly to a very rebellious people because you need to speak loudly to stubborn mules. I think that's why the, the, the language is so harsh. And quite literally, just as those of you that were here last time, I mean, aren't these people walking off a spiritual cliff? Okay, it's coming up to the end. You know, if your child is running off a cliff, wouldn't you do anything possible? Threaten. Okay, so God has to shout. He has to speak loudly to, to try to get our attention. And I think that's why we have such, such harsh words. Now, I love this verse in Jeremiah. It's um, very concise here that Jeremiah 34, we're, we're just, they're just about ready to be taken off in Babylonian captivity. And God says, very well then, I will give you freedom. The freedom to die by war, disease, and starvation. And uh, so here's the thing. We have freedom and love. And these two run hand in hand. You can't really have love if you take freedom away. I mean, uh, you know, just, just think about a doctor again. Should, you know, should we chain patients to a table or something to prevent them from smoking or something like that? I mean, you will give the patient every bit of information. You will pull out all the stops. Okay, but... They have the freedom to choose. And it's the same thing in our you know, relationship with God. He's, it's, the other choice here is, would we prefer a God who became a puppet master? Would we prefer a God, you know, in the story here, the people going off into Babylonian captivity, that he gives them freedom, 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 but then at the last moment, when they're just about ready to be captured, to be taken up, he rewires their brain, takes away their freedom, and makes them obey the way he wants them to. Okay, so, you know, God already had pets, okay, but he wanted people, and people are free, and love and freedom, and it just has to work that way. God does not have love unless we're free, and so I would say that the, the process, what's being described here in Jeremiah, you know, when we talk about sin, what is sin? Well, just look at the people, you know, in Jeremiah's time. They were disconnected from God. They were rebellious. They were distrusting. That led to all kinds of sinful actions, but, you know, at its core, uh, they had a, were very distrustful in their attitude towards God. And uh, eventually, what can you do in that situation? So let's do very quickly here. Um, we've sort of, you know, off and on, we've, we've had this, t- this subject through the Old Testament, but haven't really tried to pull it together. So let's try to do this uh, here very quickly. We go back to uh, Deuteronomy. And I said God does everything in Deuteronomy, but yet we still see hints of this all the way back here in this book. For God would say, my anger will flame up like fire and burn everything on earth. It will reach to the world below and consume the roots of the mountains. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. Okay, I haven't seen this in a, in a bulletin as a key text or anything like that. But when you, when you come across something like this, um, always keep reading. Okay, keep reading. And here, just a few verses later, they fail to see why they were defeated. They cannot understand what happened. Why were a thousand defeated by one and ten thousand by only two? And here's why. The Lord their God had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. And so again, we we tie these, these things together. That God had no choice, did everything he could for them. That he refused to pull the strings and eventually had no choice. He gave them up. Okay, and, and again in Deuteronomy, they will abandon me and worship the pagan gods of the land they were about to enter. 
When that happens, I will become angry with them. And what does he do in his anger? I will abandon them, and they will be destroyed. Many terrible disasters will come upon them, and then they will realize that these things are happening to them because I, their God, am no longer with them. Okay, is there a consequence of completely cutting ourselves off from God? Okay, that's what this is describing here. Okay, so we can, uh, again, using the Bible as a story, we want to see in specific instances, in specific stories, where God's wrath is described, what actually happened. So we have one story here where the Philistines captured the covenant box. Okay, we have a summary description of that in Psalm 78. They angered him with their heathen places of worship and with their idols. They made him furious. God was angry when he saw it. So he rejected his people completely. He abandoned his tent in Shiloh, the home where he had lived among us. He allowed our enemies to capture the covenant box, the symbol of his power and glory. Again, this this redundant relationship here between God's anger and giving up, giving over. Okay, the Assyrian captivity. Hosea and Isaiah in these books um, have a lot to say about this subject. This is from Hosea. Again, forceful language. God saying, I will attack the people of Israel and Judah like a lion. I myself will tear them to pieces and then leave them. When I drag them off, no one will be able to save them. Again, keep reading. I will abandon my people until they've suffered enough for their sins and come looking for me. Perhaps in their suffering, they will try to find me. And so, again, the, the abandonment here in what is being described, it's, it's for their good. Okay, you may, as a parent, occasionally allow your children to suffer a painful consequence of a behavior or a choice. But the, the suffering, again, it's a form of discipline. You're hoping they learn that, um, you know, I can't do that. that. That had a horrible result. And so we sometimes talk about the discipline of captivity, okay, where the people learn how wrong it was to leave God's side and, and the result of all that. Okay, again in Hosea, this time uh, chapter 11. And this, this one really gets to how does God feel in his anger? How, oh, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How, oh, how can I hand you over, Israel? How can I turn you into Sodom? How can I treat you like a Gomorrah? My heart recoils within me, and my compassion is kindled. I will not give vent to my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. You can hear the the tears here in God's voice, describing as his people go off into captivity. Okay, so we have, um, we talked about several Old Testament examples, and we move to the New Testament. Okay, another historical event. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem, 70 AD. Okay, and Uh, Paul talks about this in Thessalonians, and he would say, in this way they have brought to completion all the sins they've always committed, talking about uh, the Jews, Um, and now God's anger has at last come down on them. Now, if we are just reading this verse independent of the entire rest of the Bible, okay, we will just run with our own assumption of what God's anger is, okay, that God again imposed something on those people. So the question is, how did Paul understand God's anger? And I think in Romans 1, Paul, he really synthesized all the Old Testament evidence about what God's anger is. If we want to read it just in the most concise form, uh, read Romans 1. Okay, the subject is God's anger. God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the sin and evil of the people whose evil ways prevent the truth from being known. God punishes them because what can be known about God is plain to them, for God himself made it plain. So the, the subject of Romans 1 here is God's anger or wrath, and actually, how does God punish? 
Okay, so we read on. They say they are wise, but they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images made to look like mortals, or birds, or animals, or reptiles. Okay, and so God, in his anger, what does he do? He has given those people over to do the filthy things their hearts desire. And they do shameful things with each other. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. Again, such a, a central um, part of the whole problem here. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself, who's to be praised forever. Because they do this, and I think Paul just wants to make sure we, we really get it. Because they do this, God has given them over to shameful passions. Because those people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge about God, he has given them over to corrupted minds so that they do the things they should not do. Again, three times, gives them up, hands them over, okay, to, to emphasize, I think, all of this Old Testament um, evidence about what God's wrath really looks like. Okay, and so uh, the, the death of Jesus, we can tie this to so many things. Because of our sins, he was given over. Okay, and of course, what did Jesus cry as he died out? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you handed me over? Why have you abandoned me? Okay, and this is a huge subject that I won't uh, risk um, summarizing here in, in a short um, few sentences. What actually happened to Jesus? Okay, we will get into the New Testament this year, and, and we will um, try to describe this. But, you know, at the cross, we, we certainly see, if we want to look at a clear image of what God's character is like, this is it. Okay, but I think at the same time, the cross is where we see the, the malignant inherently destructive nature of sin and the sin problem. So we, we, it all comes into focus at the cross. So we need to be careful here. Um, I saw someone wearing a t-shirt with this not too long ago. God's wrath was aimed at you. Jesus Christ took it. Now, you have to be careful how we understand this because who was that on the cross? This would kind of imply, you know, we're, we're splitting the Trinity up here. We have the Father, he's like this. And then we have the Son, he's like this. But again, we have to see the one here on the cross as being fully God. This was God. Okay? And um, anyway, a subject we will, we will talk about much more. Yes, I think we could fairly say that we do see God's wrath at the cross. But again, how are we interpreting what that actually is? Okay, so um, let's just move forward to the book of Revelation. And we have a tantalizing verse here. The, the central image of God in the book of Revelation is the slaughtered lamb. Okay, and remember, the Revelation also gives us this beast, and they, they're doing very different things in the book of Revelation. But we, we have a description of wrath in the book of Revelation, the wrath of the Lamb. Now, could you possibly come up with a more counterintuitive relationship than that? Do we have anything from our personal experience to associate a Lamb and wrath? Um, is the Lamb, is that just meant as an identifier? Oh, that's Jesus. Okay, or is the lamb, is it meant to signify something um, that, uh, that would have uh, an additional meaning? I mean, you know, God is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Why not have the wrath of the lion? That would maybe fit a little better with wrath. Okay, but the wrath of the lamb. Uh, it's, it's just interesting that uh, that imagery would be used. We don't associate a lamb as, as having a, a wrath. And again, if this, the reason it's why it's so important to build our picture on the Bible as a whole is we come to this very challenging, uh, the final plagues in Revelation 15, the last plagues, which are the final expression of God's anger or wrath. Now, if we have you know, come equipped with the whole Bible and what the whole Bible has to say about God's wrath, uh, do we see the final plagues as something, again, extrinsically uh, imposed by God 
Or could we see the final plagues uh, as something that, again, results from a people, like in Jeremiah's time, don't trust God, who are separating themselves from God. God does everything he can. And then there are consequences uh, as a result of that. So again, I think um, this verse, we often associate here, but sin pays its wage, death, that the one who pays the wage is God. But sin pays the wage, death. That is, sin has an intrinsic, and I'm not talking about so much uh, sinful behaviors, but the the root of sin, the, the distrustful attitude towards God, rebellion, that that has a very real consequence, just like we saw in the people of uh, Jeremiah. Very real uh, consequence. Okay, let me give you a last example here. Um, I have a patient that I've seen at the VA at least four or five times over the last three years, and um, he drinks about two of these uh, every day of uh, vodka. And um, so I saw him initially for seizures, and we were trying to figure out, well, are the seizures, um, does he have epilepsy, or are these just alcohol-related? Right? So I saw him, and we did a big workup, brain scan, EEG, a long time talking with him, and finally concluded, well, these are alcohol withdrawal seizures. 100% of these are all related to alcohol. Okay, And, and uh, so uh, I referred him to the alcohol treatment unit at the VA. VA has a wonderful alcohol treatment unit, very high success rate for patients that actually go through it. Okay, um, so we talked with him, sent him to the alcohol treatment unit, and he didn't show up. Okay, so he continues to have seizures. And then I saw him back uh, maybe eight or nine months later for numbness and burning pain in his feet because he's still drinking alcohol. Okay, and this time I remember he came with his family. His son, daughter were there. They were very concerned about him. And we had a long talk. And they were completely on board with me that the alcohol is a problem. He'd had DUIs and could list a whole bunch of other things related to this. And they were just twisting his arm. Dad, you've got to, you've got to take care of this. Look at all the problems it's causing in your life. And he seemed receptive. He said, okay, I'll go. And so he actually had an appointment with uh, Dr. Ask. Um, to, and he was going to be admitted to the alcohol treatment unit. And I think he lasted uh, a couple days. And he left. Okay, went right back to drinking uh, vodka. Okay, and uh, this was just amazing because this one patient, I remember very clearly, I saw about every neurologic complication of uh, alcoholism. As he came back uh, a year or so later, and now he's very off balance because alcohol is, um, is toxic to the cerebellum, the whole brain, really. Okay, so now he's, he's falling all over the place because of the, uh, the effects of the alcohol on his cerebellum. And then finally, the last visit... Um, he'd had a real cognitive decline. He was demented from alcohol. And um, the illustration here is, you know, a a distrustful, rebellious attitude towards God where we reject, reject, and reject again and again and again. It eventually even destroys our capacity to respond because we're not seeing things in the right way. The, The effect of that separation has just caused us to have a distorted view of reality. And here in this sad case, now try to counsel a patient who has dementia, and he's really not even processing that much uh, what I'm saying to him. And so eventually he ended up placed in a nursing home. Now he's not drinking anymore, he's in a nursing home. But the effects of the decades of alcohol abuse had had, had a real effect. And so, uh, again, I would like to, if we make a parallel with God, I mean, what do we call Jesus, our heavenly physician? You know, in, in many ways, he lived the life of a physician, spent more time healing than he did preaching, probably. And so... Um, you know, and not that I did a very good job here compared to 
you know, what we see Jesus doing, but it wasn't effective. Did everything I possibly could, but the consequence was entirely um, self-imposed. Okay, not something that I had imposed. Oh, here's an MRI scan just showing you. There's a normal cerebellum, and there's significant cerebellar atrophy um, from alcohol. So I think there are a couple of different ways of looking at God's wrath. It certainly is very important as we build our picture of who God is. And I think next time we'll uh, get to the subject of hell. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, thank you for so much evidence that on this difficult subject that uh, we don't just have a key t- text here or there, but that we have real stories where we see how your wrath played out um, in reality, in the reality of what happened. Please help us to understand this better. And as always, clarify our picture of who you are. Help us to trust you and to come closer to you in our daily life. Amen.